from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Folklife Today podcast. I'm John Pham, the head of research and programs at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. And I'm here with Steve Winnick, a folklife specialist at the center and the creator of the Folklife Today blog. Thank you, John. You may have noticed that's not our usual theme music. Since May is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, we replaced Bonaparte's Retreat with some ukulele music by Herb Ota Jr. As a Hawaiian with Japanese ancestry, we thought we should feature him right up front. The tune was a snippet of Ku'upua i Paukalani, which was written by Queen Leili Ukolani, the last reigning monarch of Hawaii, who was a great songwriter in addition to other things. That was just a snippet, so visit Herb's Homegrown Plus blog to hear the whole song and many more. Yeah, great tip, Steve. On this episode, we thought we might highlight some collections and blogs connected to Asian and Pacific heritage. So first up, we quite recently published a blog by Alina Magoni about a very interesting Korean collection, and we've asked her to join us and talk about it. Welcome back, Alina, and I got to say, great job co-hosting last episode. Oh, thank you. Hi. Yeah. yeah, that was great. Thanks for taking over from us. That was awesome. Well, it was a pleasure, but you guys were missed. Um, so I wanted to talk about uh, this collection of a small group of rare recordings of traditional Korean songs. Um, these were recorded by Alice Cunningham Fletcher on July 24th, 1896. These cylinders contain the earliest known recordings of Korean music in the world and predate the next documented recording of Korean songs by 11 years. Wow. I guess we should start by hearing one of the songs. Good idea. This song is called The Blooming Plum Tree Song. It's amazing what we have in the archive, isn't it? Um, how did we come to get these cylinders? Well, Alice Cunningham Fletcher was a well-known ethnographer. At the time, she was president of the Women's Anthropological Society of America, an organization formed because women were not allowed to join many academic societies. As soon as the Washington Anthropological Society admitted women a few years later, though, she became president of that, too. Her cylinder collections were made for the Bureau of American Ethnology and ultimately came to the Library of Congress. Soon after, the American Folklife Center was created in the 1970s, all those ethnographic cylinders became part of the center. Most of Fletcher's work was with Native American groups, and she was also one of the collectors be behind our Omaha Indian Music presentation online. Yeah, Alice Fletcher was such an important presence um, in ethnography in general and is known for her work with Native American groups. But how did she come to make these cylinders in the first place? Well, the opportunity to record the Korean singers came about by chance, and Fletcher went ahead and seized the day. Exactly how it happened is too long of a story for me to tell here, but luckily we have a lecture online by ethnomusicologist Rob Provine to tell the story. Let's hear a teaser. On the surface, nearly everything about this recording 
event is incredible. In 1896, almost the only Koreans in Washington, D.C. were a handful of diplomats assigned to the Korean legation, and all those were highly educated gentlemen with a strongly Confucian upbringing. That a group of such Korean gentry would enter the house of a single lady and sing a group of songs, including children's songs, into a machine the likes of which they had never imagined is virtually inconceivable. For her part, Miss Fletcher, to judge from materials in her surviving archives at the National Anthropological Archives, took not the slightest interest in Korean music at either that time or at any other. So, what was the solution to this conundrum? Can you give just a tiny summary? Sure. Well, Alice Fletcher had a friend who was also an ethnographer, Anna Tolman-Smith. Smith was interested in Korean songs, and in Washington at the time, there was a Korean-born American citizen named So Kwon Bun, who had worked in Washington for some time and who was often a consultant on Korean culture for federal cultural institutions. He and Anna Tolman Smith knew each other through her interest in Korean songs and nursery rhymes. For a brief period from February to September of 1896, So Kwon Bun was head of the Korean legation in Washington. And I'll let Dr. Provine take it from here, Just to explain, for part of the clip, he's reading from 1896 news clippings that are on his PowerPoint screen, which explains some old-fashioned language. Seven Korean students studying in Japan decided they would rather study in the United States. They managed to escape and got as far as Vancouver before running out of money. Uh, Vancouver, they telegraphed the Korean minister, that's so gone bum. So, uh, So Gwangbum got the students installed at Howard University. Social gatherings of the student took place on the night of their arrival, and they attended in a body, solemn, sedate, and observing. In the course of the evening, they were surrounded by a dozen persuasive damsels <laughs> who begged them to sing. One at last managed to signify that he could not sing in English, but they were assured that this did not matter, and after more urging, the program of Swanee River and like songs was diversified by specimens of real Korean melody. And from other sources, we know the names of the students, and sure enough, they include An Jung-shik and Lee Hee-chul, whom we've encountered before. So, although details are missing, the general background of the 1896 cylinder recording should now be clear. A group of young Korean male students arriving in Washington, D.C. in 1896 were under the care of So Gwangbom, head of the Korean legation. And somehow this led through existing contacts with Anna Tolman Smith to Alice Fletcher and thence to the recordings. All right, this is all fascinating, uh, but I imagine there's even more to the story. Yes, there's all kinds of intrigue, including a tale of international diplomacy, an 1884 failed coup d'etat in Korea, an escape by political dissidents to the United States, and another pioneering Korean student at the University of Maryland. You have to hear the rest of the lecture to find out the whole story, though. Well, you can find that lecture easily in Alina's blog at blogs.loc.gov folklife if you search for the term Korean. One last thing, Alina, it's particularly interesting where the recordings were made, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. These recordings were made in Alice Fletcher's house, which doesn't seem that exciting, but her house was at 214 First Street Southeast, which is an address that's not there anymore because it's inside what is now the Madison Building of the Library of Congress. 
So with a first street address, that means every time anyone walks from our reading room to Capital South Metro, they're making kind of a pilgrimage past the place where these recordings were made and where a pioneering ethnographer lived and worked. Yes, it's pretty amazing. The cylinders were created just steps away from where they're now served. Yeah, this is this is fantastic indeed. Um, Alina, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Well, thank you for the invite. It was great to talk to you. Now we're going to look at another of our collections with one of our processing archivists, Sarah Ludwig. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, Sarah, the blog post you wrote celebrated the completion of a finding aid to the Linda LaMacchia collection. First off, describe how you process a collection and how it leads to a finding aid. Yeah, so processing a collection involves several steps with the end goal of enabling better access to and use of archival materials. When materials come to the archives from a donor, they usually have some existing order or system of organization. It's my job to survey the collection to determine what this original order is and arrange the mat materials accordingly into series and subseries. The collections at the AFC are multi-format and include AV, manuscripts, photographs, transparencies, and digital content, so I also have to determine the specific housing and storage needs for each format. I tackle any preservation issues that come up and rehouse materials in acid-free boxes and folders as needed. The final step is the creation of the finding aid, which describes the collection material at the folder or item level and enables researchers to use the collection. Well, that is a lot of work, so thanks for doing it and also for explaining it. Now, in the blog, you talk a little about how the work of processing a collection connects you to the collector. Yes. When I'm processing a collection, I get to read other people's mail, rummage through their notes, and examine their photo albums. By the time archival processing is finished, I feel like I know the collection's creator. So, the creator, who was Linda Lamacchia? Yeah, Linda Lamacchia was a folklorist and ethnographer who documented the music and lives of Tibetan Buddhist nuns, or Jomos, in the Kanaur district of northwestern India between 1985 and 2017. Lamakia conducted fieldwork in Kanaur for a period of 15 months in 1995 and 1996 for her dissertation, while pursuing a PhD in South Asian Studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. During this period, she recorded the life stories, songs, and local religious practices of the Jomos living in the Indian state of Himachal Pradesh near the Tibetan border. These life stories represent three Buddhist sects, Drukpa Kagyu, Gelug, and Nyingma. The Lamakia collection is a rich resource on women's religious expression and the role of women in adapting Buddhism to local traditions. It includes 140 sound recordings of songs performed by the Jomos, including Tibetan language songs called Gurma, and songs in the local Kanari language, which are called Gitang. It includes over 1,500 photographs of Jomos, lamas, or monks, Buddhist religious ritual, and the scenery of the Himalayan mountains. And it includes 11 of Lamakia's handwritten journals with, with detailed field notes documenting her 15 months of dissertation research. Well, it's really great when a collection has audio and photos and text to really build up a multidimensional look at a community and its traditions. Of course, folks will have to go to the blog at blogs.loc.gov slash folklife to see the photos, but I wonder if we could hear one of the songs. Absolutely. This is Song of Friends, a Gitang or Kanari language song performed by nuns in the village of Kanam. <laughs> 
Wow, that was great. Once again, a song of friends from the Linda LaMacchia collection. So these sound recordings are incredibly valuable. But Sarah, you also connected strongly to her photos, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. I had the most fun exploring the photos uh, Linda LaMacchia took during her personal travels in India. After graduating from Swarthmore College in 1965, LaMacchia frequently traveled to India to visit a college friend. It was during her personal travels in India that her interest in Indian culture grew, and she began her research with the Jomos living in Kanar near the Tibetan border. Her collection documents these travels and includes photographs from tourist sites, time spent with friends, and travels across the Indian subcontinent. I found these photographs particularly exciting because of my own experiences traveling in India. In 2016, I spent six months living and studying in Hyderabad, India. At the time, I was a college student who had never lived anywhere else besides my home state of Minnesota. While in India, I enrolled in classes in Hindi, history, and anthropology at the University of Hyderabad and lived with a local family. In my spare time, I traveled, eager to see as many places as I could. My travels took me from south-central Hyderabad to the northern state of Rajasthan to visit Amber Fort in Jaipur, to the Ghats along the Ganges River in Varanasi, and to the Buddhist pilgrimage site in Sarnath. As I arranged and rehoused photographs for this collection, I discovered that Linda Lamakia and I had traveled to many of the same places, and we actually had very similar photos of the same locales and scenes. In the blog, we've placed some of my photos and some of hers together so people can see how close they are. Yeah, and there really are some striking parallels. There are even some pictures of dogs in both your collection and hers, aren't there? Yeah, that's right. Uh, during her years of research in India, Lamakia adopted a stray dog that she named Puppy Durga. And Puppy Durga and other stray dogs feature in many of her photographs and journals. And at the time of her death, she was writing a memoir about her travels with Puppy Durga. So clearly a dog lover. Um, and I also enjoyed taking photographs of stray dogs. And my host brother in India and I even came up with names for the neighborhood strays. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, what do you think all of this tells us about archival collections? Yeah, the excitement I felt at seeing my own travels and experiences reflected in Lamakia's folk life documentation showed me that these archival collections have something to offer all of us. These materials are not just for academic study, they also offer unexpected and unique opportunities to connect with people and places on a more personal level. Well, we couldn't agree more, Sarah. So thanks so much for being with us today on the Folk Life Today podcast. Yeah, thanks for taking the time away from processing to come over here and sit with us. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Now, when we discuss Asian and Pacific Island programs and collections, really, we have to talk about the Homegrown Concert Series, Steve. Yes, I agree. Uh, unfortunately, our producer for these concerts, Thea Austin, is off on vacation while we're recording this, so you're going to have to put up with me talking about that collection. But the good thing is... I often get to know the artists pretty well through doing an interview with them, which also becomes part of the series and the collection. 
So in recent years, what have we hosted in terms of Asian and Pacific Island cultures? We've had quite a few. We already mentioned Herb Ota Jr., who is Hawaiian of Japanese descent. We had An Yao, a Chinese-American guzheng or zither player. We've had Chao Tian, who plays Chinese hammered dulcimer. Chum Gek from Cambodia. And going back before the pandemic, we've had many Indian groups, Tuvan music with the Alash Ensemble, Lao music and dance, Korean music and dance, and much more. And our Pacific Islander offerings include Samoan dance and several different kinds of Hawaiian music and dance. So we try to have a few Asian and Pacific Islander heritage offerings each year. Now, did you bring one specific concert to share with us? I did. Uh, just this month, I added to the Homegrown Plus blog series our 2021 concert with Tenzin Chuegyal. He comes from a nomadic family in Tibet, but his family left due to the Chinese occupation, so he was raised in India in a refugee or exile community with the Dalai Lama as his political and spiritual leader. And while there, he learned several genres of traditional music and song from his nomadic background. And then after he grew up, he moved to Australia, which is where he lives now. So he's not Asian-American per se because he's not American, but we think his music and experience are very relevant to Asian-American communities. Tenzin performs all over the world, and one of his recent albums called Songs of the Bardo, on which he collaborated with Laurie Anderson and Jesse Paris Smith, was nominated for a Grammy Award. Yeah, he's a very inspiring performer, so let's hear him. This is Tenzin Choigal singing and playing the traditional three-string lute, or dronyan. So in this song, it's talking about seeing a beautiful bird in the willow tree, and then the artist is asking, beautiful bird, with your beautiful melodious voice, would you be able to take a message back home? So, meaning um, Tibetans living in exile, wanting to send message back home to Tibet. So it's a fun little song called The Little Bird.
Again, that was Tenzin Choigal's Little Bird. And the Homegrown Plus blogs also include an interview. So what can you tell us about your interview with Tenzin? It was a fascinating conversation. So this was at the height of the pandemic, and he was traveling to support this album. So when people got back to Australia at that time, they had to quarantine for about two weeks. So he was actually in a quarantine hotel, and he told me he was treating it like a meditation cave, deciding what to do with his time in the cave. And he decided to use that time partly to study Tibetan mythology and folklore using online resources because he had a great internet connection there. So um, he told me one of the stories that he'd been researching about Milarepa, who was an important yogi and spiritual poet in the 11th and 12th centuries. So let's hear some of that story. There was one story that I read a couple of days ago. And you know Milarepa, you know, when, when he was meditating in his caves, he used to make soup out of nettle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the these uh, stinking nettles, yeah. Mm-hmm. The tip of these things, the tip leaves of the st- stinking nettles, they make a really beautiful soup. And so, as he one day, as he was, you know, going to cook his soup, he needed to go out and collect uh, firewood. He left his cave, and after a while, he came back. And as he came back, he sees that his whole cave was taken over by demons and as he saw all these demons and demoness has taken over the cave he quickly rises to the occasion and says Mm -hmm. I need all these demons out of my cave but how can I do that so he starts teaching them about nature of things and about the experience of existence and non-existence and love and compassion and all this. So he sat on his meditation cushion in the space that he normally meditates and starts giving teachings to them. As he started giving teachings to them about the non-existence and the nature nature of all phenomena and, and all this, one by one all these demons start started disappearing and dissolved into the space. And as it dissolved into the space, there was one demon that with his fangs coming out and his nails like, like uh, yeah, and all like super proudly stood steadfast in front of him and not going to go anywhere. And so Milareba thought, I have done all, all the ways, whatever I can to shoo them away, but this particular demon is like steadfast and the particular demon which has super boasting eye written on him. <laughs> and so, so he stood steadfast and and then Milebo just thought, okay, there's no way I can get rid of this guy. So how about I offer myself to this demon? And maybe that that's the way maybe he will go away. So Milarepa just goes in front of his mouth, this like with the fangs and his mouth, offers his himself, his whole body in front of him and says, Eat me if you wish. <laughs> and as soon as he offered himself to this giant of a demon, 
the demon disappeared and dissolved into the space. So in a way, like I think the story is about Miller Ripper dealing with his own demons. Sure. Yeah. So it's kind of like, I think it's a really nicely, like very beautifully woven story, but at the same time, it, you know, like you could sing that whole story. Yeah. Can, could you hear a song with that? Like, I think you can sing that whole story. It sort of reminds me of you in your hotel room too, because you mentioned, you know, that it, you, you can decide what are you going to do with your time in your cave, you know, and that's yeah. sort of similar to what the, the decision that Milarepa has to make there. So yes. wonderful. Thank you for the story. And that was a story about Milarepa from Steve's interview with Tenzin Choigal as we celebrate Asian um, American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And just like that concert, our whole Homegrown Plus series has the concert and the interview together in one blog post, along with links to other resources at the library and beyond. So that was just a taste of our recent blogs on Asian Pacific topics, but you can find many more relevant blog posts on Folklife Today by going to blogs.loc.gov folklife and using the Asian American History and Pacific Islander History categories. That's about all we have time for this time, but we're going to let Tenzin play us out on the bamboo flute. Uh, before that, let's thank our guests, Sarah Ludwig and Alina Magoni. And we also want to thank our performers and lecturers, Robert Provine, Herb Ota Jr., and Tenzin Chuegyal. You can find the full video of their lectures and concerts on the blog. Also, we have to thank our engineer, John Gold, and all our friends throughout the library who help us produce and deploy the podcast. We'll see you next time on Folklife Today. Here's Tenzin Chuegyal with the flute piece, Lotus Born. Um, this piece is called Lotus Born, and I would like to read a tiny little poetry that I wrote uh, before the piece. On the wings of the wind horse, I send my prayers. I smell the eucalyptus, but in my memories arises the scent of juniper. I have left and moved to oceans beyond. I am where I was, waiting. I have never permanently left you. I shall come back. So here is the lotus born. <laughs>
This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.